This week on the Backtable Podcast. There have been instances of small hospitals, large hospitals, health systems, and other practices, medical practices, who are experiencing similar events. And I would say the common thread is that the hackers are in the system for days, weeks, months before they're discovered. Scoping things out, you know, looking to see what information they can find and get access to and potentially exfiltrate. They may be looking at your insurance policy that might apply. They might look at the language of your cyber insurance policy and the limits and find out the circumstances to which it would respond. They might be looking at cash flow within the business to understand when receivables come in and when payables go out. And they might also be sizing up what it might cost to the target to have its systems down for two days, three days, two weeks, four weeks. So the threat actors have done the math already to give you a ransomware demand in your pain zone. You don't have to do that math for them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Today, we've got a great episode discussing cybersecurity and healthcare with Jason Newton. Jason is general counsel at Curie. He joined Curie in 2013 after a 14-year career in private law practice defending doctors, advanced practice providers, and hospitals. Curie is an insurance, wealth management, and advisory firm headquartered in Raleigh, North Carolina. Jason is nationally recognized and frequently sought-after speaker, and organizations coast-to-coast regularly ask Jason to speak on a variety of topics relevant to physicians around the country. I met Jason at the recent SIR. He gave a great talk at the recent SIR Business Institute, so he comes highly recommended. I'm very pleased to introduce our guest to teach us about cybersecurity, what it is, and what we need to know. Welcome, Jason, to the show. Aaron, thank you so much. I'm just thrilled to be with you. Yeah. First of all, I want because I made this mistake when I sent you the outline, but what does the general counsel at Curie do? Because I called you a general counsel, and I apologize for that. No worries. I do all kinds of things. Obviously, I'm out on the speaking circuit, but internally, I manage the legal affairs of the company, consult with the executives, serve as our compliance officer, as our privacy officer. I work on our information security team with our compliance department and IT department. So a lot of different things from medical professional liability issues for our insureds to risk management issues for our insureds to risk management issues for the business. And so you had this 14-year career in private law practice where you were doing defense. How did you get interested in cybersecurity? Was there a particular event or personal experience that, that sparked it? So fortunately, there was no traumatic experience that sparked it. And I think this is where I can empathize with your audience of primarily physicians. You know, when I was in private practice back in the late 90s, early 2000s, our law firm started initiating HIPAA-specific policies and procedures using business associate agreements, et cetera. So it's a lot like what your practices have to do. Like your practices and your physicians that are part of your audience I know they didn't go to medical school to learn about this stuff, to learn about HIPAA, to learn about cybersecurity, but unfortunately it's a necessity in today's world and practices, physician practices, much like legal practices, need to have someone who is going to own some form of familiarity with the regulations and the infrastructure that's required. So it doesn't sound like one day you just woke up and you're like, I want to be the cybersecurity expert. It sounds like it was a gradual process, something you learned over time. Walk us through the road to becoming the cybersecurity expert. So as I mentioned before, I'm on the information security team as head of legal within our organization. It's part of my job to keep up with the current regulatory landscape, resources that are available, 
current events, as well as to help be a resource for our physician insureds and their practices externally to help educate them about exposures and hopefully help mitigate risk against bad outcomes. So part of my job internally, part of my job externally, and I think it's fairly common in organizations like ours for legal to have a role in those compliance issues. So let's jump into kind of the 101 aspect for our audience. Can you help us understand the what's the current threat of ransomware to healthcare? Kind of start, let's start like thousand foot picture and then we'll kind of get in more granular as we go. Sure thing. So healthcare providers are sitting on mounds and mounds of PII or personally identifiable information and PHI, protected health information. That makes them a target. You've got credit card information, addresses, social security numbers, details about healthcare conditions. And not only that, but almost every practice I speak with today is facing staffing shortages. So it's logical to presume that those shortages are impacting cybersecurity practices as well. You mentioned this, I think, in one of your slides is, you know, the fact that, yes, data is an asset. We, we always hear about how data is such an asset or, you know, it's so great to have all this data. But what you're telling us is it's also a huge risk, right? Especially, and we'll talk about some of the other industries where it's a huge risk, but focusing on healthcare right now, when we hear about these attacks, they sound like present day pirates. But tell us more about how much of a risk it is, and, and then we'll get into some of the examples. The chief risk today is ransomware when we're talking about cybersecurity. And the trajectory of growth in terms of where we are presently is unreal. Just to give you an example, in 2015, one data aggregator reported that only 60, that is six zero, ransomware incidents were reported. In 2021, uh, there were over 600,000. Oh my God. So there's also staggering headlines. Like in April of 2022, the federal government in the U.S. conceded that hackers have the ability to take control of key infrastructure in the United States today. And healthcare is obviously considered to be part of our critical infrastructure. In 2023, the FBI noted that healthcare was the most attacked sector among those classified as critical infrastructure. And that's nothing new, Aaron. I mean, that's been the case for years. But just to put a point on it, you know, healthcare attacks surpassed those against manufacturing, government, and schools. And so healthcare definitely is a target. Is it the most common target or is there something that's more common, like banking, for example? No, healthcare is the most common target. Wow. And when I speak to physician practices, as I frequently do, the perception is, hey, this can't happen to me because I'm a small practice in a relatively small metropolitan area and someone on the other side of the ocean isn't going to be interested in my data. And the fact is, that's just not true. Threat actors are not interested just in the big fish. One in five of all those who had data security incidents in 2022 had revenues of less than 10 million. Half of all those who had data security incidents in 2022 had revenues of less than 100 million. And again, those statistics are nothing new. Like that wasn't new ground that was being broken in 2022. That's consistent with prior years. Part of the reason for that is threat actors go after the weak gazelles. They understand that smaller institutions that are sitting on valuable data have less staff, less expertise, and less money to spend on cyber defense. And so they go after them. So maybe you can help us kind of wrap our head around who these hackers are, right? Because we read the headlines and we're like, oh, it's somebody from Russia, it's somebody from China. But is that true? Or are there a lot of domestic hackers? What's the makeup of hackers that we know in terms of demographics? Yeah, from my knowledge base, Aaron, it is not stateside, it's overseas. 
and it comes from the countries that you would anticipate it might come from. You know, an interesting twist is people think, physicians may think, for example, that geopolitical events or conflict might not have an impact on cybersecurity as it relates to their practices. Again, that's just not true. It's been well documented that threat actors are interested in healthcare information about U.S. government leaders, military leaders in the U.S. In fact, earlier this year, in March of 2023, I believe, there was a health insurance information exchange that did suffer a breach, and it housed sensitive personal and healthcare data about members of Congress. So an extension of that for medical practices is if you're sitting on data, and we see this particularly for orthopedic practices, you're sitting on data for people who are professional athletes and might have contracts that are worth in the tens of millions of dollars. You know, a number of years ago, we saw hackers targeting those types of practices and saying, listen, I know this athlete is with your practice. I know this athlete has this contract renewal negotiation going on. And I know the medical information about this athlete that might reduce that athlete's value to the organization. I mean, those are the kinds of things that threat actors might be using against them. These days, from what I see, Aaron, it's more about the money. And the hackers are simply looking for a quick payday rather than truly trying to go out in the dark web and market healthcare data for individuals. So that was my next question was, what are they after? Is it just money or is it chaos? Is it social or political geo-activism? Like, you know, it sounds like you kind of partially answered that question already, but is that all we're seeing nowadays? Is just people, hey, give me the, send me the Bitcoin. It really is just about the money these days. I mean, as I mentioned, other governments may be taking an interest in uh, particular people in the U.S. in terms of exposing or learning about their background. But by and large, medical practices are not essentially being the victim of what we have termed uh, hacktivists, right? I mean, there was a lot of talk about that when ransomware started to sort of come into the mainstream. But really, it's just about money, and it's just about trying to secure payments in crypto or Bitcoin. And that's it's usually a crypto, not just they, they can't get away with just cash because it's too traceable. That's right. You know, whatever demand is made is going to be made via communication on the dark web, the Tor browser, and the demands are going to be made in Bitcoin. These are sophisticated enterprises. And even though they operate in Bitcoin, I should say that cryptocurrency is not completely untraceable. If you think back to during the pandemic when Colonial Pipeline was breached and gas prices went way up and there was scarcity because of the breach and so on and so forth, I think most people can remember that. Colonial Pipeline, it was widely reported, paid over $4 million in ransom to release for the hackers to release control of their operations. But within about three weeks of that, the DOJ reported they were able to recover over $2 million of what was paid, even though it had made in cryptocurrency. Now, I don't have data to suggest that that always is the case, but it certainly is the world within which the hackers or threat actors operate. Yeah. And there's a term that you used, I think, in your presentation, social engineering attack. Can you define or explain what that is? Absolutely. So threat actors will be tailoring messages to folks like physicians or whoever their targets are to try to dupe them into clicking on a link or responding to a message or giving up some personal information. So at its core, phishing or social engineering is a personalized attempt to pose as someone within your organization or someone that you might know to fool you into thinking they're not a threat actor. There's a couple ways that they can do that. My perspective, Aaron, is that there really isn't anonymity anymore. I mean, everybody posts everything about their personal lives, their professional lives online. It's all documented for you know, most of the world to see. 
And sometimes these threat actors will study their targets on social media or company or practice websites to learn who reports to who, who's networked with who, who's on vacation out of town, who's visiting another country. And therefore, the folks back at the home office might be expecting communication from them as they're managing affairs from afar. People post things about birthdays online, so you can get information like that. And not only that, but the threat actors typically have been in systems well before they're discovered by those who are affected. On average, at least last year with some data that I've reviewed, threat actors were in systems on average about 66 days before they were discovered. And so during that time, the threat actors are watching email habits within the organization. Maybe you sign your emails instead of Aaron, you sign off as capital A, capital F. You know, maybe you call somebody in your office whose name Susan, you call her Suze. And the threat actors are going to attempt to mimic that in their communication when they're trying to get someone to click on a link to give away the keys to the farm. It's so interesting you see that because I was just checking my spam folder today for something from Delta Airlines. And I was like, huh, there was an email from one of my former employees by his name saying that he's changing banks and he needs information for direct deposit to change his bank, right? And it got flagged for whatever reason, but I was like, wow, this is really sophisticated stuff because somehow they knew that that person's a former employee and that they are no longer working with us, right? And to reach out like that, I mean, it's a, it's also amazing that Google just picked it up. They're like, no, this, this doesn't look right. We're going to throw it into spam. It, it really is kind of scary about how sophisticated it's getting. And unfortunately, I think it's just the tip of the iceberg or the sign of what's to come. I mean, I think you can't pick up any publication these days online or wherever and not read an article about chat GPT, right? And it's interesting because there's now talks about deep fake. So not only can chat GPT mimic written dialogue with folks who use it, but these types of AI can also generate deep fake videos. They can generate uh, deep fake audio. So, you know, an example I read about recently was someone was asking one of these AI tools to call a relative and ask for their social security number. And the trick is, can the relative determine that it's AI, it's someone posing as the individual rather than individual? Because in the situation that you're talking about, I mean, normally before you would do anything like that, before you would make any adjustments to a financial transaction, when you received an email about it, you would pick up the phone and you'd call that person to do a voice verification. And I don't know how long that's going to continue to be reliable. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, the software that we use for this podcast, which is called Descript, already has an AI version of, of my voice. We've done this before, Jason. There's been times where we have to insert questions and I can just type it out and throw it in between somebody's monologue like we were talking about. And it sounds like me asking the question with you answering it. It's, I mean, it's already here. It's here. Every month it's getting more and more sophisticated it's progressing so rapidly. So I don't want it to be all gloom and doom and, 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 you know, spreading fear on this, on this episode. I appreciate you, you bringing this to us because I'm just starting to learn more about it. And I'm one of those guys, to be honest, where I hate passwords. I hate the double encryption. It's all a pain in the butt, but it seems like it's going to be commonplace because it's, it's an absolute necessity. If you don't want people stealing your money, stealing your identity, I want you to kind of walk us through first Maybe tell us how cybersecurity insurance works and then also other things that we can do to protect ourselves. Sure. And, and I will, again, sort of empathize with you on what you just described, Aaron. Pure and easy are two opposite ends of the continuum. And anything easy is not going to be secure and anything secure is not going to be easy. That's elemental. 
And so we're going to have to continue to adapt because hackers are always multiple steps ahead. So whatever the latest technology is that's seen as a defense is going to be targeted for them to exploit, and they're already doing that. Going back to your question about cybersecurity insurance, in prior years, the market was more like the Wild West, and there weren't the losses that were piling up. I mean, I shared with you statistics about how few ransomware events there were back just seven or so years ago. So the market has tightened up significantly as the losses have piled up. We've seen carriers who are leaving the market. They're offering less limits these days. Physician practices might be required if they want to try to get to $5 million in coverage. They might have to use multiple carriers to do that. The various limits embedded within a policy might be restricted. So even though you have $5 million on the face of the policy, there are sublimits. So you might have a cap on the amount that's applicable to a social engineering attack. So it's really important to have an ally, particularly a, a broker who knows that space to help you find in place and vet that coverage. Yeah. And so I was kind of joking around with a, a lawyer buddy of mine who was talking about cybersecurity. He was talking about one of the news headlines. He was aware of sort of the insurance issues where he said it's basically starting to sound like flood insurance in Florida. Like, you know, if you're going to be in a flood zone, it's just good luck getting in, you know, in these high risk, high risk situations because the attacks, as you said, are becoming more frequent, much greater risk than it was years ago. Everything's digitized, right? And so at what point is having everything on digital too much of a risk, right? I mean, should we be going back to paper files so that we don't put ourselves at risk for, for hacking? I wouldn't go to that extreme. And like you, <laughs> like you, Aaron, in, in some respects. So in some respects, I would. And like you, I don't want to be doom and gloom about this stuff. I think it's just part of the fabric of practicing medicine today to be aware of these issues and to do what you can to mitigate against a potential bad outcome or mitigate the results of potential bad outcome if it occurs. So I will share with you personally, there are things like online password tools that you can use to you know, create stronger, better passwords with more frequency, maybe random passwords, et cetera. I'm a little bit more old school. And my philosophy is if it's connected to the internet, it's vulnerable. And so I literally have a handwritten password sheet that includes the regular updates that I do to change my personal passwords. The fact of the matter is in healthcare, intraoperability is a concern with EMRs. They, they do have their failures and they do have their value. But it's interesting in some of the attacks that I'm familiar with that have occurred, you know, when hospitals or health systems are forced to go to downtime procedures, which means we're now using paper records and paper charting, they have people who've recently come out of training and they have no idea how to operate in that environment. That's a challenge in of itself. That is true. I didn't even think about that. You're right. It's like our kids trying to learn handwriting. It's just like they, they right. don't, all they want to do is type on the computer, you know? So I, I do want to hear a little bit more about what are the, you mentioned the cybersecurity insurance and it's, it's more difficult to get, the premiums are higher, but can you give us an idea of like for these big healthcare systems, how much is enough really? I mean, what are some of these, well, I want to talk about some examples of settlements and then who takes responsibility, but can you give us an idea of like what, how much insurance is enough for the individual, maybe the, the small practice and then, you know, a healthcare system? So I don't have complete visibility in the large healthcare systems because we cater to individual independent physicians and in their practices. But I will tell you that 
you need to try to have at least a million dollars. You need to aim for higher than that if you can get it. You probably are not going to be able to get $10 million in coverage these days. Wow. And like I said, in order to get $5 million, you may have to cobble together a program with multiple carriers. So those are some rough numbers for what folks might want to might want to target. So even for like, let's say you had a five person group, a millions like is, is, is what you're going to be able to get? Probably so. Wow. And, and like I said, you need someone on your side, like an insurance broker who's skilled in that market. They know that market. They can look at your practice and they can benchmark what other similar practices are getting in that market, what your potential exposures are. And then another whole dimension to that is making sure that you're able to fill out your application appropriately. The applications for cyber coverage these days are extremely complex, long, and detailed. And you have to make attestations about what measures you have in place in terms of cybersecurity defenses. If it turns out that you've attested that you have something in place that was exploited as the vulnerability to cause an incident down the road, that then you go back and report to the insurer, there like will be no coverage for that. Are those coverage plans state-specific or are they national? The coverage would apply for an event that occurred anywhere. So it's not unique It's not unique to a jurisdiction per se. Because chances are it's going to come from overseas or something like that. So let's talk a little bit about who takes responsibility ultimately, right? Because we've heard story, and you could probably give us some examples of stories where whether it be the group or the company or the healthcare system takes responsibility, sometimes they put the responsibility on the individual. Can you talk us through how that works and how that's decided? Sure. Responsibility is going to be on the folks who hold the sensitive data. And when we're talking about medical practices or health systems, we're talking about covered entities. And those are the ones who are charged with the primary responsibilities under HIPAA and high tech. Of course, there are business associates that could be affected as well. But if the incident occurs because of, you know, an intrusion at a medical practice, for example, then that practice is going to be responsible. What could be involved in that responsibility? There's a gamut of things. Uh, They could face fines or penalties. Uh, They could face settlements or investigations. So OCR, the Office for Civil Rights, which is a division within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, is the investigation and enforcement arm of HIPAA. And if you you reach a certain threshold of 500 or more patients who are affected in an incident, then you have certain reporting obligations. And what that does is provide the investigators with a window into the practice to look at all of cybersecurity policies and practices and history. What we're seeing lately is that those investigators are more interested in trying to make sure that practices have robust systems in place going forward than they are trying to make an example of them. But once you get through all that, there's also the risk of class action lawsuits by opportunistic plaintiff's lawyers. And the the plaintiff's lawyers, make no mistake, they're just in it for the fee. Those suits really aren't about the harm that individuals might potentially have experienced due to an incident. They're about that 30 or 40 percent that the plaintiff lawyer can collect on any settlement that is ultimately achieved. So praxis may have coverage for some of what I've talked about. Some of the insurance policies that we've talked about may provide coverage for either paying a ransom or for paying a settlement with either a state attorney general or someone like OCR. But there also is likely to be out-of-pocket expense for the practice as well. I see. Yeah, I guess I maybe they weren't true stories, but I've heard horror stories of you know companies basically pointing the finger at some the person who opened the email that led to the the ransomware, right? You know, in one instance, it was an IT person who they put the responsibility on. And I don't know how often 
you know, those things happen. Have you heard anything like that? Like where they are able to shift the blame towards an individual when it was, somebody was watching something that they shouldn't have been on, on a hospital computer, for example. I haven't heard specific uh, situations where someone who's affected by a data intrusion or data security incident is blaming it on an individual employee that was simply negligent. There are reported instances of bad actors who have access to data, but are on our side of the fence. Those are much less frequent than the external threat actors and much less reported about, but they do happen from time to time. So the ultimate responsibility is on the the company that houses the data. Right. It's their responsibility to protect that data, keep it from exposure or harm. That definitely makes sense makes sense in, in the case of healthcare. And you know, we all grumble about like not being able to access our Gmail at the hospital and stuff like that. But when you when you hear this and you hear what I mean, that's you think about how it can shut down a whole system and maybe you can t- give us some examples of that, recent examples. It's really, I mean, it, it's a lot of people's care at stake, right? There's actually been fatalities that have happened because of ransomware. Absolutely. And I don't want to call out you know, individual practices or health systems, but I'll just focus on a couple because there are public reporting obligations when this kind of stuff happens. And you know, affected practices do have to put notices on their website that they have experienced an incident and they have to notify the patients who may be involved. So one specialty practice you know, within the last couple of years had an incident that compromised or at least allowed access to over half a million patients' data. And it turns out that the threat actors were in the system for three months before it was discovered. So that's, that's one example. On the other end of the country, another practice that had dozens of locations had a similar issue. You know, hackers were in the systems for over a couple weeks. And, you know, and, and that situation is not unique. There have been instances of small hospitals, large hospitals, health systems, and other practices, medical practices who were experiencing similar events. And I would say the common thread is that the hackers are in the system for days, weeks, months before they're discovered. Scoping things out, you know, looking to see what information they can find and get access to and potentially exfiltrate. They may be looking at your insurance policy that might apply. They might look at the language of your cyber insurance policy and the limits and find out the circumstances to which it would respond. They might be looking at cash flow within the business to understand when receivables come in and when payables go out. And they might also be sizing up what it might cost to the target to have its systems down for two days, three days, two weeks, four weeks. So the threat actors have done the math already to give you a ransomware demand in your pain zone. You don't have to do that math for them. Yeah, (laughs) they've already figured it out. It's amazing how sophisticated it is. And so when they are discovered that they've been in the system, how are they being discovered? Is it just your... Norton antivirus software, or is it something more sophisticated than that? It depends on the sophistication level of the IT department, frankly, or whatever security vendor you've got assisting you. You know, the typical fact pattern that I'm familiar with is ultimately the hackers fess up and send you a ransom note. So you get an ominous and threatening note outlining what you need to do to pay them and telling you all the reasons why you don't need to go and report things to the authorities or worry about the fact that it's a problem. You just need to pay them. So it sounds like they're discovered in retrospect that they were there 60 days before they got the ransom note that says, hey, we're about to shut you down unless you pay this amount. 
That's right. It's the forensic investigation that would occur once you have noticed that someone is there, for sure. So they're operating unseen, basically, is what it sounds like by anybody. That's right. Crazy. Because this ransomware has taken off, are we seeing a um, corresponding explosion in anti-ransomware software that helps protect us, just like we did with you know security cameras in, in the real world? Well, I think what's happening is, and it, it's largely driven nowadays, Aaron, from my perspective, not from regulatory framework like it was in the early days of people trying to understand and comply with HIPAA. What I'm seeing is that best practices is a poor term. Maybe current practices are being driven by insurance application requirements. So it's table stakes these days for multi-factor authentication to be used throughout a system in order to even gain access to a cyber insurance policy. So EDR is, is another thing that's now being required. That's endpoint detection and response. And that's basically an algorithm that does proactive, not passive threat detection. And so it's those types of mechanisms that are being used as opposed to necessarily what historically would be thought about in terms of virus protection software that's driving current practices. And again, the question is, are those sufficient to combat or stave off uh, the threats that exist today? Okay. It sounds like it's not complete gloom and doom. There's there's these ways to protect ourselves, multi-factor authentication and EDR that's, and again, it's been labor intensive, right? We talked about this, how we all hate passwords, but in order to be secure, I mean, we all hate being surveilled by security cameras too, right? But I mean, when you get when you get robbed, it's good to have that security camera to identify who the person is. So surveillance, I think, is just going to be everywhere all the time going forward. Is there anything else that docs? Because again, most of our audience are individual physicians, either part of groups or have their own groups and their and their own practices. Any other ways that they can protect themselves without? spending a bunch of extra money. I, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is just training, but maybe you can elaborate on that. Absolutely. Training is a necessity. I've said before that people are the weakest link when it comes to cybersecurity practices and consistent training, training for new hires, making sure that everyone within your practice understands that if they see something, they need to say something. I also like to talk about driving home with folks who are connected to your systems, the idea that you approach your inbox with a zero trust philosophy. You have to assume that anything that comes, frankly, from within the practice or from outside the practice into your inbox is an attempt to create a data security incident. But there's a number of things that you can do to help either serve as the basis for that training or to reinforce that training. OCR, I mentioned earlier, they've got newsletters, they've got listservs. It's important that someone in the practice take ownership for this and get on those listservs. And when OCR says some, sends out something that is a security alert or something that they're seeing, it's important that the practice be able to share that with whoever is managing their IT security. The practice can consider whether it's a patch or whatever step is being advised to be taken. The HHS website also has what I call 405D resources, and we can provide links to you, you know, to include with the podcast, Aaron, but they've got a number of resources, whether it's PowerPoint, posters, that type of thing to assist with training employees. Another thing to be on the lookout is, you know, again, we talked about staffing shortages earlier. You may be hiring people who are not accustomed to the sensitivities and vulnerabilities associated with data at healthcare practice. And so they need to understand from day one what the risks are, and they need to understand how to operate within those risks. And one of the things that you can do 
is have an anti-phishing software. And again, won't call out any by name, but what these services generally do is, like your experience recently, they might flag something as seeming particularly vulnerable. They might pull out emails that they suspect as malicious. They also provide the opportunity for users within an organization to report suspicious activity. And the really good ones not only do that, they take it a step further and allow the vulnerable email that shows up in somebody's inbox first person to report that, flag it, and once the threat is validated, they actually pull that email out of everybody else in the organization's email inboxes so no one else will fall victim to it. That's a really important feature to have. Additionally, CISA is providing resources as well as HHS these days, and so that's federal government agency. It's the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. There was some legislation that was passed last year, and there's now a ransomware vulnerability warning pilot. And so the federal government has shifted into a posture from my standpoint of actually not just being the folks that you have to go to once you have a bad event, but also they may be notifying you in the future of a vulnerability they have spotted or their, frankly, international network has spotted that might affect your health system or your practice. So there's resources on CISA's website in terms of uh, training materials, checklists, et cetera. And as part of this pilot that I mentioned, one of the recommendations is to build a relationship with the regional CISA cybersecurity advisor. So there's 10 different divisions, if you will, around the country for cybersecurity advisors to operate within. And so what you'd want to do is go to their website, see what region you're in, reach out and contact your regional CISA cybersecurity advisor. This is all free. There's no cost. They're happy to talk to you. I've done this for our company myself set up a 20-minute call, had a conversation, partly to just establish a relationship such that if we were to knock on wood, have some event that we need to talk about in terms of assessing the damage or what happened, we can skip the formalities. That person now knows a little bit about my operation. I know how to get in touch with them. I have their email and contact information. You can put that into your incident response plan and you can get right to whatever the issue is. But also, I found that my contact there was very willing to assist in healthcare for trainings, webinars, resources, what have you. So again, free resources, all it takes is just the time to invest to get them. Our company has put a couple things on our website, and again, I'm happy to provide you links. We have a cybersecurity insurance for medical practices white paper. We've got a, articles on selection of EMR vendors and checklists and those types of things. So as you can gather from what I'm saying, Aaron, Cybersecurity is a full contact sport. It's not impossible. You're not going to lose all the time, but there are some things that you have to do and you can't sleep on this stuff. Jason, that is perfect. Thank you um, for all this information. It's a great 101 on cybersecurity. I think there's a lot more that we dive in deeper at a later date. And what we like to do is put these episodes, these 101 episodes out, and then we oftentimes will get questions and comments from the audience about what we didn't cover. And so we'd be happy to have you back on once that happens. Love to be involved whenever it would be helpful. And I appreciate the opportunity, Aaron. Thank you. Perfect. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. While we hope this discussion may be helpful, there are no guarantees that the information and resources shared will prevent and or mitigate bad outcomes and no guarantees or endorsements are made. Although Jason is an attorney, he cannot and does not offer legal advice to external parties and an attorney-client relationship is not established with listeners of this podcast. Please contact your personal or corporate attorney if you require legal advice. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Louis Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 